Thank you again for joining us today. If you have your Bible, I wish you would open it to the book of Romans. In just a few minutes, we're going to be in chapter number 5. It's one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 5. And I can't wait for us to look at some of those great verses uh, uh, together this morning. So I think it'll be a blessing. Hopefully it will. While you're finding Romans chapter 5, let me ask you a question. And you may never have thought about this. Probably you never have. But let me ask you the question nonetheless. What do Wuhan, China the Garden of Eden, and Golgotha have in common. Now, you never have probably thought about Wuhan and the Garden of Eden and Golgotha together. But the other morning I woke up and I was thinking about that. What do these three locations have in common? Well, the first thing they have in common is pretty obvious. All of those places are a long way from here. In fact, each of those locations is over 7,000 miles from where I'm sitting right now at First Baptist Church in Pasadena. So they're a long way off. But another thing and an even more important thing that all those places have in common is that something happened there that has affected the whole world. Now, for the last several weeks and even months, all we've heard about on the news is Wuhan, China and this coronavirus. We know that that's where the virus began. And we have a picture I want us to see today of Wuhan. You've probably seen this on the news. I don't know about you, but before we got into this pandemic, I had never even heard of Wuhan, China. But as I have read about it and learned a little bit, it is a major, major city in China. There are over 11,000, I'm sorry, 11 million people who live in Wuhan, which makes it considerably larger than the city of of Houston. And the scientists tell us that that's where this uh, virus began. Now, whether it came from bats that transmitted it to another animal and then it came to humans or whether it came from a lab, uh, everybody has their theory. And I don't know that we'll ever know the full answer to that. Maybe one day we will. But nonetheless, Wuhan, China, if you think about it, is the birthplace of the coronavirus. From there, the coronavirus has spread to the whole world. And we have all, in one way or another, been affected by this virus. But if you think about the people who have actually been infected, those who have been infected by the virus, it's certainly not the whole world. Now let's go to the second location, the Garden of Eden. We're probably more familiar with the Garden of Eden, certainly, than we are with Wuhan. We know that it was there. We read this in Genesis chapter 2 that uh, Adam and Eve were living. That was their home. God had planted a garden. And from the account we read in Genesis chapter 2, this garden was located somewhere between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, or those two rivers. And so that means that the Garden of Eden, although nobody knows the exact spot, we even have, I think, a map that we can show you of a a hypothesized location. Maybe this is where it was. We're not sure exactly. But more than likely, the Garden of Eden was in what we know as Iraq today. Modern-day Iraq was the home of the Garden of Eden. And just like Wuhan, China was the birthplace of the coronavirus, the Garden of Eden uh, was the birthplace of sin. It was there that Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit. They did the one thing that God had told them not to do. And when they did that, sin entered the world. In fact, you're in Romans chapter 5. Look in verse number 12. This is one of the classic verses in the chapter. Verse 12 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread 
to all men because all have sinned. So think about this. The coronavirus so far has spread to 0.0005% of the world's population, and it has completely shut the world down. But sin did something far greater than that. Sin spread to the whole world, and the Scripture says that all have sinned. And so if there are 8 billion people living on the planet today, that means 8 billion people have been not just affected, but infected by sin. Sin has spread to all of us, and not only to those of us who are living today, but everyone who has ever lived has been infected by this virus, this sin virus, which is deadly. It is much more deadly than the coronavirus or any other disease out there because it carries with it not only earthly but eternal ramifications. Now, it's interesting if you read, and I did this not long ago, how many people have ever lived uh, in the world, in the history of the world, how many people have ever been born? And if you look that number up, you're going to find maybe a few different answers to that question. But I think most people would estimate that over a hundred billion people have lived in the history of the world. Think about that. Over a hundred billion people, and each and every one of them has been infected by this sin virus. And we've been infected. The whole world has been infected. And so just like the coronavirus has symptoms with it, there are chills, there's a cough, there's a fever, there are body aches, there are all these different things that go with the coronavirus, sin, just like every disease, has symptoms with it. And a person who has been infected with the, with the sin virus, first, the first thing that happened to us is that we were separated from God. Adam and Eve were separated from the presence of God. Before they sinned, God would come walking with them every day. The Bible says in the cool of the day, at evening time, God and Adam and Eve would walk through the garden together. But after they sinned, all of a sudden on the day, the next day when God came to walk with them in that garden, they were afraid and they were hiding from God. And sin has a way of doing that. It separates us from God. Not only that, sin separates us from each other. And Adam and Eve kind of started blaming each other for the sin. And it causes guilt. They had guilt. It causes shame. They were shameful. It causes fear. Adam said to God, he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. And so when we think about how holy God is and we think about how sinful we are, it naturally causes us to be afraid. Sin has brought all those things into the world. It has brought sickness and disease into the world, and ultimately sin brought death into the world. Had there been no sin, there would be no sickness, there would be no disease, and there would be no death, and yet sin has done that. And since we've all sinned, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we have symptoms. This disease has, has symptoms, just like every virus has symptoms. And some of the symptoms of sin are selfishness, pride, anger, lust. That's just to, to mention a few of them that all of us uh, have experienced. And, and sometimes we do experience those, those symptoms to a far greater thing. So when you think of Wuhan, think of it as the birthplace of the coronavirus. When you think of the Garden of Eden, think of it as the birthplace of sin. But there was a third place I mentioned in the opening question, and that is Golgotha. What is Golgotha the birthplace of? Well, if you think about it, Golgotha is the place where Jesus died, but it is the birthplace of the only cure for our sin. We have a picture this morning of Golgotha. Many of you have been there with us through the years. As we've taken those trips to the Holy Land and as we've, we've toured the land of Israel and we've come to Golgotha, and there you see on the you see on the screen there a picture 
of Golgotha. And that, liter- that word literally means place of the skull. And you can see by looking at that picture, if you look closely enough, it looks like two eyes, two eye sockets. And then you see a place for the nose. And it, it was known back in Bible times as the place of the skull. And it was there that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. I can remember growing up in the church and we used to always sing that song. And I love that song, On a Hill Far Away stood an old rugged cross. And I remember the first time I went to Israel in 1985, I looked at that, at that Golgotha, that place of the skull, and I just assumed Jesus had been crucified at the top of that hill. But that's not the case because the Romans crucified people on street level. They crucified them on street level so that when people were walking by, they could see the agony and the pain. And it was part of the humiliation of being crucified. Not that you were separated way high up on a hill, but that you were down there on street level and you were being crucified. And again, the first time that that our family went to Israel, a long, long time ago, I can remember standing there at the foot of that hill thinking Jesus was crucified right here. And if you go even today to Israel, there's a train, uh, I'm sorry, a bus station that backs up to Golgotha. And I thought, how disrespectful. And it is, I think, disrespectful that they would have a, a, uh, a bus station backing up there. But then I thought, maybe our guide pointed out, even though this is disrespectful and it kind of We wish it wasn't like this. He said in some ways it's appropriate because in Bible times, this was the center of activity. This is where all the people were. It this, this just outside the Damascus Gate. It was outside the city of old Jerusalem. It's inside the city of Jerusalem today. But that's where Jesus Christ was crucified. That's where he shed his blood. And that's where he provided a cure. And the only cure for this disease that we know as sin. And so something happened in, in, at Golgotha that has affected the whole world. And it has changed the lives, literally, of all who choose to believe and all who will receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, in Romans chapter 5, I want to just draw your attention, and I'm not going to belabor these individual points, but I want to draw your attention to some things that happened to you and to me and to all who have received Christ as a result of what happened at Golgotha. The first thing that happened is that we found through the shedding of Jesus' blood the forgiveness of all of our sins. Look down in verse number 9. Paul said, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we, have been, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so in the shedding of Jesus' blood, we find the only forgiveness of our sins. And Paul uses the word justified here, which we know means just as if it never happened. Think about that. Every sin that you have ever committed in the eyes of God, it's just as if those sins never happened because his blood has washed those sins away. Now, I'll tell you something else we have uh, from Jesus' death there at Golgotha. Not only forgiveness, but we have peace with God. Look back in verse number one. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so after we've placed our faith in Jesus and he's washed our sins away and now he has declared us not guilty, that's what that word justified means. It means that he has looked at us and he has made a judgment and he has pronounced us not guilty. We have given Christ our faith. He has given us his righteousness 
through forgiving our sins and clothing us with his own perfect righteousness. And so God looks at us now and God says, you're not guilty. And you know what that does? It gives us peace with God. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, the reason they were hiding and the reason they were afraid, they had lost their peace with God because sin had separated them from God and made them scared of God. But for those of us who've been saved, we're not scared of God. We've been forgiven by God, and now we have peace with God. Someone has said that for the child of God, the war with heaven is over. You say, well, I never knew I was at war with God. I never knew I was at war with heaven. Well, you were before you got saved because there was, there was sin standing between you and God. But Christ's blood has washed that away, and he's given us tremendous peace in our hearts that we know that all is well between us and God. We don't have to be scared, we don't have to be scared of God. We don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid to stand before God in judgment because our sins have all been washed away. And not only that, we have access to God. Look in verse number 2 through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so we have access to God. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, it is as though he opened the way to heaven and has given us direct uh, access to God. We read in the, in the New Testament that when Jesus died on that cross, that there was an earthquake that took place. And when the earthquake took place, the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And you know, the holy of holies, the only person who could ever go in there was the high priest. And he would go in there once a year on the day of atonement to offer up uh, a, a, an offering, a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the whole world for everybody's sins. But the average person could never go into the, into the holy place, the holy of holies. That represented the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated from where normal people could go to the presence of God, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Had it been torn from bottom to top, man could have done it, but it was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God did it. And so God has opened the way to heaven and so that we have access to God. We can talk to God any time of the day or night about anything that is on our heart. And that's, that's all as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. He has literally opened heaven up for us. And not only do we have that, but we have hope. As we look to the future, look in, verse number, look in verses 3 through 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or endurance. And perseverance, endurance, produces character. And character, hope. And so God has given us hope as we look to the future. We know that, that God causes all things to work together for good. And there's that great hope there. And in verse number 5, it said, Now hope does not disappoint. You know, sometimes we put our hopes in other people and they disappoint us. But we put our hope in God and he never disappoints us. And then the scripture says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so we have hope. We look to the future. We're going through this coronavirus right now, but we have hope that it won't always be this way, that God's going to see us through, that either he's going to cure it or he's going to give doctors and scientists wisdom and they're going to come up with a treatment for this and life will go on. And so we look to the future, not with fear and dread. No, we look to the future with hope and excitement and anticipation, knowing that the best is yet to be. It's always that way with God. And then not only do, think about what we have. Think about what happened at Golgotha 
that has affected and changed the lives of all of us who placed our faith in Jesus. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God, access to God. We have hope. His love has been poured out into our hearts so that it is possible for us to love people with His unconditional love. But not only that, we have grace because we need grace each and every day. Look in verse number 20. The Bible says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so the Bible is teaching that God's grace is greater than our sins. His grace covers our sins. And if you've received Christ, you know about that grace. And you know we need that grace not only when we get saved, but we need that grace every single day of our lives because none of us is perfect, not even after we get saved. We still sin. And the Bible says when we sin that God's grace is greater than all of our sins. And I'm so very thankful for that. And then when it talks about how God's love has been poured in our hearts, we know how much God loves us. I love that, I love that verse in 1 John chapter 4 that says, perfect love cast out fear. That's not talking about our love for God. Our love for God isn't perfect. Nothing about us is perfect. But His love for us is perfect. And so since He loves us perfectly, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful of anything. Anything that God allows into our lives, God will ultimately use for our good and for His glory. And there's great peace and there's great comfort in knowing that. And so when I think about what happened in Wuhan and 0.0005% of the people have been infected. We've all been affected. Then I think about what happened in the Garden of Eden and over a hundred billion people have been infected but then I think about what happened at Golgotha and all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and have chosen to receive him as our Lord and Savior we have been forgiven of those sins and we have peace with God today and we know that even when we sin now we have grace and God's grace covers and washes away and takes care of all of our sins you know so many times in life I think that you know, we have a way of magnifying our own sins and the sins of others uh, instead of magnifying God's grace. I, was, I remember years ago, I was thinking about a former player in the NFL. Of course, several days ago now, a week and a half or so ago, we had the NFL draft. Many of you who are big football fans like I am, you sat, you sat, sat in your home that Thursday night and you watched the NFL draft and it was... Uh, unlike any other NFL draft in the history of the world because they couldn't be on location. They were having to do it from their homes. But it was very interesting just watching those players be taken, watching them with their parents and with their families celebrating uh, this great milestone in their lives. And so uh, it's really the only live sporting thing we've had since this whole epidemic, this pandemic started. But I guess with the draft taking place and, and the sports world being out, and that kind of got my mind back on football, even though it's not football season, I, I couldn't help think about uh, one of my favorite players. He played back in the 1980s and the 1990s. His name was Ernest Biner. For those of you who are longtime football fans, you'll remember that back in 1984, Ernest Biner was drafted by the Cleveland Browns and had a great, great career there. He was a running back. And he could catch the ball out of the backfield. He could run out of the backfield. Just a tremendous athlete and a great contribution to that Cleveland Browns organization. In the 1987 AFC Championship game that actually took place, of course, in January of 1988. It's called the 87 Championship game because it was coming off the 1987 season. And in that particular championship game, the Cleveland Browns had traveled to Denver 
and they were playing the Denver Broncos. The winner of this game, of course, would go on to play in the, in the Super Bowl that year. And if you remember anything about that game, you know that the Broncos jumped out to a big lead and looked like for sure they would win the game. And then as the game progressed, the Browns staged a really good comeback and ended up tying the game 31 to 31. Well, with six minutes to go in the game, John Elway led the Denver Broncos down and, and they scored a touchdown. They went up 38 to 31. And so now it was the Cleveland Browns' turn to try to drive down the field and to score a game-tying touchdown that would send that game into overtime. It was just an amazing, amazing game. And so, sure enough, Bernie Kosar, the quarterback for the Browns, starts driving his team down the field. And, and with a minute and 12 seconds left in the game, they got to the eight-yard line, the Denver Broncos' eight-yard line. They were eight yards away from a touchdown. And Bernie Kosar took the snap from center, and he handed off to the running back, Ernest Biner, one of my favorite players. And and Biner went left. In fact, the play called for him to go towards the left tackle. And he got to the left tackle and kind of the inside part where he wanted to go was jammed up with players. And so he turned outside and, and he was headed to the end zone. And it just looked like undoubtedly Ernest Biner was going to score this touchdown and they would go into overtime. It was just amazing. When Biner got somewhere between about the three-yard line and the one-yard line, the cornerback for the Denver Broncos, a guy named Jeremiah Castile, who had played his college ball at the University of Alabama, just came out of nowhere and stripped Ernest Biner of the ball, caused him to fumble. The Broncos recovered the ball, and that, that ended the game. The Browns lost, the Broncos won, they went to the Super Bowl, and that play became known simply as the fumble. But the fumble was so infamous that not only did the play become known as the fumble, the game became known as the fumble. In fact, today, if you get bored this afternoon, take your phone and Google these two words, the fumble, and you're going to find all kind of articles and video footage of the 1987 championship game when Ernest Biner fumbled that ball as he was going in for the game-tying touchdown. Well... As you can imagine, not only did the game get to be identified and called the fumble, Ernest Biner's career kind of got to be marked and identified with the fumble. Here, one of the greatest running backs of all time had fumbled the ball, and now that's all anybody really thought about when they thought about Ernest Biner. And I can remember years ago, I was telling that story in a sermon, and after the sermon was over with, uh, I was preaching at a Tuesday Bible lunch. I guess my dad was out of town that day. And after I had told that story, I, I, the reason I told it, I was just trying to say, hey, no matter how, how much you love God or, or how long you've been a Christian, uh, everybody fumbles. I mean, every Christian fumbles. We all sin. And I was just telling that story to make that illustration. After this sermon was over, I got back to my office and Tom Gamble, one of our ministers, walked in my office. He said, John, I enjoyed the sermon today about fumbling. And I enjoyed the story you told about Ernest Biner. He said, I remember that game. I remember that play. And, and he said, but you know, John, you left out the best part of the story. And I thought, well, what did I leave out? He said, don't you remember what happened to Ernest Biner after the fumble? And I, I thought, I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't guess I do. I'm drawing a blank on that. And he started telling me and, and reminding me that Ernest Biner went on to play for one more year with the Cleveland Browns. And, and then he got traded to the Washington Redskins and his first two years in Washington, he actually made the Pro Bowl. In his second season with the Redskins, after the 1991 season, the Redskins went on to play in Super Bowl 26, where they defeated the Buffalo Bills. And in that game, 
in the second quarter of that game, Ernest Biner actually caught a touchdown pass, and he played a, a key role in helping his, his new team to win that game. And Tom just told me that. He said, John, I just wanted to tell you, if you ever tell that story again, don't, don't end it with Ernest Biner, the fumbler. Be sure to follow that story up and, and remind everybody how Ernest Biner went on to, to have a life and even a career and Super Bowl success after that, after that terrible fumble in that 1987 AFC Championship game. And I thought, as I've thought about that through the years, I've thought, isn't that just like us? We tend to remember the fumbles and forget the touchdowns. We remember the games that we and others lost and we seem to forget the Super Bowls that we and others have won. I'm thankful today, and I know you are too, that God is just the opposite of us. God forgets the fumbles, and He remembers the touchdowns. God forgets the games that we lost, and He remembers the games that we have won. And you see, that's what, as we think about the difference that Golgotha makes... And the blood that Jesus Christ shed on that cross, the difference it makes to us, is that God has, has given all of us who have all fumbled the ball many, many times, what has God done? God has given us another chance. God has extended, us, uh, extended our career. And God has said to us today, and God is saying to some who are listening today who are not saved, hey, I know you fumbled. I know you dropped the ball. I know you did what I told you not to do. I know you did what you wish you wouldn't have done. But that fumble doesn't have to identify you. That fumble doesn't have to end your career. You can change teams. You can have a new beginning. And I can take you on to the Super Bowl, and I can give you an opportunity to score a touchdown in a bigger game. And so what I'm saying today, that is the grace of God. In fact, if you're in Romans chapter 5, look at verse number 8, because I think this verse may summarize the chapter as, as well as any verse. Paul said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's why in Romans chapter 5, when Paul was comparing what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve's sin to what happened at Golgotha with Jesus' sacrificial death, what Paul was saying, in fact, multiple times in Romans chapter 5, Paul says what Jesus accomplished on the cross is much more, that's his phrase, much more, much more, much more, much more. It is much more significant than what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The paradise that they lost through their sin that was then passed on to all of us has been regained. It is paradise regained, paradise found in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you today, not have you fumbled. We've all fumbled. Everybody, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sadly, we all still fumble. It's not like we get saved and then all of a sudden we're perfect. No, we're works in progress. Salvation happens in a moment, but sanctification doesn't happen like that. That takes a lifetime. We won't be perfect till we get to heaven. The question is not if you fumbled. The question is, have you changed teams? And have you allowed Jesus Christ to forgive those sins and to give you a new beginning in your life? And if you never have, I'm praying today that some who are worshiping with us uh, during this service on Facebook, on YouTube, on, on our website, however it may be, I'm praying today that several of you, many of you, will pray and give your heart to Jesus Christ right now. Would you just bow your head in prayer wherever you may be? I'm going to give you a chance today to pray a prayer. 
that we call the sinner's prayer. The only prerequisite to being saved is you have to admit that you're a sinner, that you have fumbled, that you have fallen short. And then you ask Jesus to forgive you and you trust Him to take those sins away. Just pray this prayer right now. The words are not important. God knows your heart. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be saved, you can be right now. Would you just pray this? Say, Dear Jesus, come into my heart Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive those sins. And I trust you to do it. Lord, give me a new beginning. Right now, put me on your team. And God, give me future opportunities, bigger and better games that I can play for you. And that I could make an impact for your kingdom right here on this earth. Father, I pray for everyone who prayed that today. I pray for everyone who's, who's worshiping with us online today. I pray that you would comfort them. And in the midst of what we're all going through, God, give them hope in their hearts. Give them peace. And help them to know that this too shall pass. And until it does, your grace is sufficient. You're right there with us even today, even this morning, wherever we might be. We are not alone. And so, God, today... Remind us of that is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen and amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer today, I would encourage you to reach out to us even today or tomorrow. Uh, online, just send us an email. Let us know of your decision. We want to get you some stuff, and we can do that electronically. We can give you some recommendations on things you can read, some steps that you can take. Maybe somebody could talk to you on the phone from the church this week. I'd love to talk to you myself if you've prayed that prayer and asked Jesus to come into your heart. If you'll give me your phone number, I'll call you myself. But we're just thankful for you. We're proud of you. And we hope that you will just begin taking your next steps, reading your Bible and praying uh, and growing in your relationship with God. And then when we can all come back to church in just a few weeks, that you'll be, you'll be in these buildings and you'll be worshiping the Lord together with us. For the rest of us today, I would encourage us at 8 o'clock every night, let's try to set aside those 10 minutes for prayer, that God would speak the word. We know we can do that and that God would just, uh, that God would put this virus down. And if he's not going to do it that way, that he would give the, the scientists and the doctors wisdom to know how to best treat this and ultimately to create a vaccine. Also, I would encourage you every day, every weekday at noon, uh, we have these devotions online. And a lot of people are watching those. It's not as good as us all being together, but it's the next best thing. And so I would encourage you to, to join us at noon. If you miss it at noon, you can go to our website and you can catch them all day long. Of course, they're on Facebook too. But anyway, thanks for worshiping with us today. I hope you have a great, great day. And uh, I just want you to know that God is with you and that you're not alone. We'll look forward to being together soon. Have a great day.